The information presented in this podcast is of a general nature and is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. It should never be used as a substitute for mental care, medical care, prevention, diagnosis, counseling, treatment, or other services. Always consult a mental health professional before engaging in any activities discussed in this podcast. Thank you for listening. Have you ever wished for magical powers? Do you still await your Hogwarts acceptance letter? Well, welcome to Hogwarts. You are magical. And this is your invitation to join us in exploring the psychology behind the most magical series, Harry Potter. Welcome to Harry Potter Therapy. Hello, all you magical people out there, and thank you so much for tuning in to Harry Potter Therapy. I'm your host, Dustin McGinnis. I am a musician, filmmaker, and all-around fan. And I'm Dr. Janina Scarlett. I'm a clinical psychologist, author, and a full-time witch. Today, we are doing the first episode, the first chapter of Season 4, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, Chapter 1, The Riddle House. So this book starts out pretty dark with a recount of a triple homicide. A family of three who were known as the Riddles were murdered under some strange circumstances. Where is crooks and pads when you need them? Right. (laughs) I still think that would be a great show. It really would. I'd watch that. (laughs) So the Riddle House caretaker, his name is Frank Bryce, and he becomes the prime suspect of these murders. Frank is a war veteran with a stiff leg, and he's kind of a loner. He dislikes crowds and loud noises and prefers to be left in solitude. There are some combat veterans out there that come back from the war and they're a little change. Can you discuss Frank's condition and why it's so hard for some veterans to maintain their social relationships when they return? Just from what we get from this chapter, it's really hard to assess his condition in terms of whether he meets criteria for any kind of a diagnosis such as PTSD. We don't know. What we do know is that he's been through a lot and... As a result of that, he doesn't seem to want to be around other people. Maybe that's his personality. Maybe that's how he's always been. Maybe in general, he's quite introverted. It does seem like, A, he he might not be very trusting of other people. And B, it seems like he really takes a lot of pride in his responsibilities. Even if his services are no longer required or paid for, it seems like He takes a lot of pride in doing what he's supposed to be doing. And I think it probably also gives him a sense of purpose. These are all kind of assumptions because we see so little of him. And of course, I didn't get a chance to interview Frank. (laughs) Um, Just kind of from the little bit that we gather from this chapter, it seems to be that he's somebody that really values having some kind of a mission or responsibility. Most definitely. And of course, Frank is innocent. And what's interesting about this situation, though, is that when the villagers found out that Frank was a suspect for the murders, they are initially just shocked and they can't believe that someone like Frank would be capable of doing something like this. However, like a spread of a virus, they all start condemning him and turning against him one by one. 
they comment on how they always thought that he was strange and shady looking and even say things like war turned him funny. His acquaintances and neighbors turned on him without proper evidence. Their whole views just flip-flopped. Why do you think it's so easy for some people to turn on others like this? I think in general, sometimes we see people engage in something called groupthink. This is where individuals in a group will have more extreme views than they would individually. And then they fall into something called the confirmation bias to where if they now believe something about this person, then they will look for any evidence that confirms this belief and will reject any evidence that disproves it. So now if these individuals are starting to think, oh, what if he's a murderer, then they're looking for any evidence in the past, such as maybe him being not a very social person, which I could definitely relate to. I'm not a very social person either. They're looking for any confirming evidence and rejecting anything that disproves it, which is really unfortunate. I think that people sometimes fall into a kind of frenzy, a kind of panic, and start believing the most sensationalized, scariest news or beliefs as a way of feeling safe, but that's not a healthy coping mechanism. Another interesting thing is the police report came back and there was no sign of murder at all. There was no gunshot wounds, stab wounds. There was no wounds. So without any real evidence, Frank is set free and deemed innocent. However, some of the villagers still don't believe it. They're completely convinced that he's a murderer. He may be innocent, but after being suspected of murder, people no longer see him in a positive light and they treat him unfairly. Neighborhood children threw stones through the windows of the Riddle House. They rode their bikes over the lawn that he so carefully manicured and took a lot of pride in. They broke into the house. All this is so sad because, like you mentioned earlier, Frank genuinely cared about his mission and took pride in maintaining this house and the grounds around the house. Frank is 77 and abuse really doesn't commit to any one age group. What do you believe causes people to want to hurt other people and treat someone in this way? My heart just breaks for Frank. He's, as you said, 77. He's a veteran and he's alone. We don't know if he maybe would have preferred to have friends or a partner, but presumably he was on friendly terms before this accusation with other people. And once again, we see evidence for this confirmatory bias, right, where people are just looking for evidence that he is some kind of a monster. They've deemed him a terrible person. They've demonized him. And it's heartbreaking because essentially what we're seeing here are signs of elder abuse. People are threatening him. People are breaking his things and, and going through the property that he, that he cares for. It's really heartbreaking. And I think that it's a really important lesson here, you know, as reading this chapter for us to think about how we might jump to conclusions and make assumptions about people based on what other people are saying without maybe checking that information for ourselves, without maybe talking to that person, without trying to understand. You know, I just thought of an interesting question. There's people like Frank where there's no evidence against them. And then there's people like, you know, someone we won't really mention on the show who is just horrible 
individual who there's so much evidence against them, yet people don't care. It's such an interesting dynamic to think of it. You know, like, why do people attach themselves to something so passionately? Again, I think we have confirmation bias, right, where people just want to see evidence that confirms what they believe and disregard evidence that disproves it. But I also think that in the example you mentioned just now, I think some people engage in something called cognitive dissonance, right? When they see evidence of maybe inappropriate acts committed by somebody they look up to that creates a dissonance, right? How could this be? I really value this person and they are accused of having done these terrible things. And so sometimes in order to reduce the dissonance, they create a kind of an alternative explanation. So they might say, no, it, it must be false information and this person is innocent without even trying to look into it. And that happens a lot when, for example, a survivor of sexual assault makes an accusation against their perpetrator, the individuals who know the perpetrator will say, there's no way this person could have done it. I've known them for so many years. They're such a great person. But here's the thing is that perpetrators and abusers don't abuse 24-7. They don't abuse every person they meet. And the people that they abuse, they don't abuse them 24-7 either. There might be really lovely and, and kind times and interactions, and then there might be really painful ones. And I think people tend to have a really hard time with things that are not kind of polar, all or none, right? People think that either this person is good or they're bad. That's all or none thinking. But it's hard for people to grasp that good people are capable of bad things and bad people are capable of good things. Mm -hmm. It's wild. <laughs> it really is. It just blows my mind that people can even see with their own eyes these things being committed or this person behaving in a certain manner and still just stick up for them. <laughs> Well, and remember in the books, right, I think it was in the night bus where I think it was at Stan that said yeah. that muggles tend to ignore what seems out of the norm for them, right? Yeah. I think it applies to everyone. But yeah, especially humans who don't want to believe anything either supernatural or anything that's outside of their window of perceived norm, including who the people are that they think that they know. Yeah. So wild. So one night Frank wakes up and he sees a light coming from inside the Riddle house. He knows there are trespassers and of course he thinks it's the kids messing with him again, but it's not. Frank sneaks into the house and he starts eavesdropping on three men who are talking. do it without the boy. No! The boy is everything. It cannot be done without him. And it will be done. Exactly as I said. I will not disappoint you, my lord. Good. Let's gather our own comrades. Send them a sign. The old muggle caretaker is standing just outside the door. Stay beside Wormtail so I can give our guest a proper greeting. 
Father Kedavra! Enter Wormtail, Voldemort, and another man of very little importance. Wink, wink. <laughs> At this point. The whole conversation, Voldemort keeps ragging on Wormtail. He belittles him, calls him stupid and worthless, and generally just treats him miserably. There's such bad treatment that there's even a point where Wormtail asks Voldemort if he's going to kill him. There's nowhere for Wormtail to go, really. He can't go back to Sirius and Lupin or Harry. He chose his side. He chose Voldemort, who is a scary wizard. But Voldemort at this point is a very small shadow of himself. He's very weak, but he's still a scary entity. Like I said, there's nowhere for Wormtail to go. His fear rules everything. He's literally a slave to his fear. His fear motivates him to betray his closest friends, to ensure his own survival, and to serve the most horrible wizard of all time. Is he just a coward, or is he a selfish person who will survive by any means? I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts on Peter Pettigrew and his will to survive regardless of the circumstances. I don't actually think that it's true that there's nowhere for him to go. I think that if he went to Dumbledore, Dumbledore would have found a way to protect him. But I personally think that the relationship between Voldemort and Wormtail is a really interesting one. I think that in a lot of ways, they're in a codependent relationship. So a codependent relationship is where one partner needs another partner and the other person needs to be needed. Typically, the person that is the caretaker often has a low self-esteem, whereas the person that's being cared for is often, or at least in some instances, abusive toward their caretaker. And I wanted to kind of go through some of the warning signs of a codependent relationship. A codependent relationship can be between romantic partners, but it can also be between friends, between somebody who is a maybe disabled individual and their caretaker, or between coworkers or any other individuals. Often the caretaker might engage in people pleasing. They might have really poor boundaries and allow themselves to be abused. They might really struggle with self-esteem and might actually find a sense of purpose in caretaking. The person that's being cared for is often reactive, sometimes even violent and abusive. And the person who is the caretaker might often not even have their own self-image. The caretaker, like Warmtail, might structure their entire life, their entire day, or their week, year, their entire lifetime around the individual that they're caring for, like Voldemort. And their life, their mood, their thoughts are usually completely about how to make this individual feel better. For example, Wormtail is likely spending his entire day trying to think about how to please Voldemort and is sad when Voldemort is sad and is scared when Voldemort is angry and will likely put up with any abuse and will even allow himself to be killed by Voldemort because of the nature of their relationship. That is a very interesting thought. And Voldemort does rely on Peter Pettigrew right now for physical reasons because he's too weak. Yes. And I think for Peter, that kind of service, I think, gives him purpose. His entire life, he was the little guy. He was one that perhaps didn't have a lot of respect. 
but he's needed. And I think he values being needed. And to a large degree, codependency is dependency, meaning addiction. So a lot of times people in a codependent relationship are addicted to each other, meaning they rely on each other. And then if they were to separate, if they were to take a break from each other, you know, or or break up, they would really suffer from withdrawal in a similar way as they would trying to give up some kind of an addictive substance like alcohol. Very often people in a codependent relationship enable one another or the caretaker will enable the person they're caring for, for example, by giving them substances. And in this case, Wormtail is giving Voldemort what he wants, even if it's unhealthy. I mean, that's a very interesting thing. And, you know, I always just assumed it was fear because he seems like such a a scaredy cat. He's afraid of everything. The truth is, I think if it was only fear at this point, because Voldemort is so weak, Peter can run away. He can hide. And because he can turn himself into a rat, so long as he's not on Hogwarts grounds where the map will find him, if he stays as a rat, he can hide forever. Or once again, he can go to Dumbledore and seek protection. But I think that it's deeper than that. I don't think it's cowardice. I think it's that he needs to be needed. Hmm. That is very interesting. Thank you for that perspective. I'm, I'm, that's mind blowing. Yeah. Well, and for anyone out there, if you believe that you're in a codependent relationship, if you believe that maybe you're putting your partners or your friends or someone else's needs above your own to the point of suffering, if you're putting up with abuse, if you don't feel like your values or your boundaries are being honored, if maybe you're struggling to find your sense of self, that might be an important time to consider seeking help. There's a wonderful book called Codependent No More, which a lot of people find really helpful. There are therapists who specialize in helping people to leave codependent relationships. Definitely, it's something to consider if you believe that you're in a codependent or otherwise abusive relationship, whether it's a romantic relationship, a friendship, or another type of relationship. So this chapter ends with the introduction of Nagini, who is this very large snake who is basically Voldemort's right-hand snake. (laughs) That's the best way to put it. Right-hand weapon. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it's very scary. It's a very large snake that he can talk to because he's a parcel tongue as well. And this chapter ends with these three evil wizards conspiring to do something horrible at the Quidditch World Cup and Voldemort murdering Frank Bryce. Poor Frank. He just was trying to do the right thing and ends up dead. As soon as Frank is blasted by the spell, Harry Potter wakes up from a bad dream 200 miles away and that's how the chapter ends and that's a hell of a way to start a book and a great way to end this episode again my name is dustin mcginnis you can find me on twitter at the valiant geek and i'm dr janina scarlet you can find me on twitter at shadow quill or dr janina scarlet official on instagram for all of our listeners out there we are sending out free signed copies of dr scarlet's book harry potter therapy an unauthorized self-help book from the restricted section to enter the drawing, all you have to do is tweet about this podcast with the hashtag Harry Potter Therapy. We will choose one lucky listener every month to receive their free copy. Unfortunately, due to high postage costs, international listeners will not be eligible for this promotion. Stay magical out there, everybody. Stay kind and take care. <laughs>